Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. We ended the last episode with Isaiah being called as a prophet in 2 Nephi 16. This week we're going to cover the next four chapters. It's still Isaiah, but I'll hopefully be able to provide enough context for these chapters for them to make sense. You'll actually understand what Isaiah is talking about, or at least you'll understand the historical events that he's talking about. As to what eternal principles they represent, we'll have to wait for Nephi to explain those in a future episode. First, though, we have the trivia question that we ended with last time. After King Solomon's reign ended, the Lord's people were divided into two nations. What were those two nations called? So they split into two different countries, one to the north and one to the south. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and its capital was Jerusalem. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin lived here, and later some Levites. The northern kingdom was called Israel, its capital was Samaria, and that's where the other ten tribes lived. That will come in handy in understanding some of the events that we're going to talk about today. To understand 2 Nephi chapter 17, we need some background information. So Ahaz is the name of the king of Judah. He became the king at age 20, and he reigned from 732 BC to 716 BC, about 16 years during a rather turbulent period. No sooner did he become the nation's leader than the leaders of neighboring countries began to conspire against him. There were two countries neighboring on Judah to the north. One of them was Syria, whose capital was Damascus, and Syria was led by a man named Rezin. Israel, the country to Judah's immediate north, was led by Pekah, the son of Remaliah. I hope Pika is how you pronounce it. Anyway, these two countries wanted to pressure Judah into joining them in waging war against Assyria. Assyria was the dominant power in the region. Rezin and Pika also wanted to dethrone Ahaz and replace him with the son of Tabeel. And despite much searching, there just isn't any information out there about the son of Tabeel that they wanted to replace Ahaz with. So the two northern neighbors wanted him to join them in attacking Assyria. But instead of attacking the Assyrians, Ahaz did something different. He went to the Assyrians for help. Assyria responded by conquering Israel and Syria and by making Judah a tributary. So Damascus or Assyria and Israel were no longer a threat and Judah lived in peace during Ahaz's reign. But this came at the cost of expensive tribute payments to the Assyrian government. Also, Ahaz started worshiping the Assyrian gods. When he was in Damascus, he saw an altar that he liked, and he built one like it in Jerusalem, and made it part of temple worship even. When he died, his more righteous son Hezekiah replaced him on the throne. Okay, with that as background, let's read chapter 7. The chapter begins with a conversation between Israel and Ahaz when 
when Rezin and Pika were still trying to convince Ahaz to attack Assyria. The Lord commanded Isaiah to go and talk to Ahaz and counsel him not to worry about the threats of his neighbors. Although they conspired against him and hoped to replace him on the throne, it would not amount to anything. Okay, so let's go into verse 3. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field, and say unto him, Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of those smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah. In English, he was saying, you don't need to worry about those two firebrands, that is, the two countries who are trying to provoke a war. Then he explains the plot of these two countries to replace Ahaz on the throne, in verse 5. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, yea, the son of Tabeel. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. So he's saying that even though Syria and Israel are conspiring against you, it's going to come to nothing. Then to prove that his words were true, Isaiah told Ahaz to ask for a sign. But he refused, saying, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Isaiah was a little annoyed by this and said that the Lord himself would give a sign anyway that a virgin would conceive, bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Later in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Matthew declared that Christ's birth to Mary fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. And chapter 17 ends with Isaiah telling Ahaz that destruction was coming from Egypt and Assyria. Now we move to chapter 18. So chapter 18 is a continuation of the scenario in chapter 17. Isaiah continued persuading Ahaz that there was no need to join the Assyrians for protection because, because the local aggressors would soon be gone. Their destruction was at hand. To make this point, Isaiah was instructed by the Lord and witnessed by Uriah and Zechariah to write the phrase Maher Shalal Hajbaz on a scroll. This phrase means hurry to the plunder or speed to the spoils, or in plain English it means destruction is imminent. He wrote it on a large roll in a man's pen so all could read it. And in today's world, this might be similar to writing the end is nigh on a billboard. So Isaiah, it says he went in unto his wife and she conceived a son, and God told him to name his son Maher Shalal Hashbaz, or however you pronounce that. In other words, he was supposed to name his son, the end is nigh or destruction is imminent. That's twice now that God has used the name of a newborn to send a message. In chapter 17, he said a virgin would conceive and name her baby Emmanuel, or God is with us. In this chapter, he was supposed to name his son, that really long name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means the end is nigh. And in other words, this child won't be old enough to say mommy or daddy before the Assyrians conquer Damascus and Syria. Now we get to the more interesting part of chapter 18. Overall, the message of this chapter seems to be that the people of Judah were going to bring destruction upon themselves because they were pursuing materialism. The Lord intended to deliver his people from Israel and Syria, but the people wanted to join Israel and Syria and rebel against Assyria. 
Ahaz, on the other hand, wanted to join the Assyrians. Israel and Damascus appeared to represent materialism. Pekah, the king of Israel, was a glutton, and he ate enormous quantities of food, and some of the rabbinical commentary talks about how much this man ate. And a gluttonous king was the type of leader that the people of Judah wanted to have. So set that aside for a minute. To understand chapter 18, we need a little more context. So the waters of Shiloh were a small, quiet stream that fed Jerusalem. And a small, peaceful river symbolized the kind of leader that they would have in Hezekiah after Ahaz died. But the people didn't want that. They wanted a flashy ruler who could eat a lot, apparently, like, uh, like they had in Israel and in Damascus. The Lord was disappointed that his people wanted to choose materialism over simplicity. He said, this small stream isn't enough for you, the small stream representing Hezekiah. Fine, the king of Assyria is a river that will overflow its banks and give you more than you can handle. So now here's Isaiah saying the same thing. Verse 5, the Lord spake also unto me, saying, Forasmuch as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh, that go softly, and rejoice in Rezin, and Remaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. In other words, you don't want peace, you don't want simplicity. Well then, you will really enjoy the king of Assyria when he invades. Then he repeated once again that they had no reason to fear their local enemies because the Lord would take care of his people. They had no reason to visit soothsayers. The Lord would provide an answer. Now we move into chapter 19. Chapter 19 is on a different topic. It's talking about deliverance. He says that people that walked in darkness have seen a great light and their burdens have been broken. And then the most famous verses of this chapter, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of government and peace there is no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. After this, Isaiah switches gears and he condemns his people three times, each time ending with the phrase, but his hand is stretched out still. When we read of the Lord's outstretched hand, we usually think of him as extending mercy, but in this case, it's a threatening gesture, a hand of judgment. And by saying his hand is stretched out still, Isaiah is saying that he's not done being angry yet. Verses 8 through 12 are a judgment against Ephraim, who was part of Israel, and that's the kingdom immediately north of Judah. It's a judgment against them for dismissing God's warnings against them. In verse 10, they mocked God's warnings in the pride and stoutness of heart, saying, verse 10, The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. To understand this, we need to talk about bricks and hewn stones, sycamores and cedars. So bricks were the cheapest building material. Hewn stones were the most expensive. Sycamores were the most common trees. Cedars were the most expensive. And so in that verse, they're saying, if God destroys our brick buildings, 
we'll just rebuild with hewn stones. If he cuts down our sycamores, we'll replace them with cedars. They were being defiant, and because of that defiance, God would cause Rezin's enemies, Rezin again is the ruler of Syria, to unite against him. Verse 13 through 17 is a judgment against their leaders because the people do not seek the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, 15, and 16. Therefore will the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. In, in those verses, Isaiah uses imagery to show that all of Israel's leaders will be destroyed, from head to tail, both branch and rush, from their wise ancient ones at the one end of the spectrum to prophets that teach lies at the other end. They will all be cut off because they caused the people to err and to lead them to destruction. Verse 17 continues with everyone, from their brave young men to their widows and children, being destroyed. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for every one of them is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this his anger is not turned away. And here's that phrase we talked about. But his hand is stretched out still. The chapter ends with Isaiah describing internal fighting within Israel, tribe fighting against tribe, brother fighting against brother, and the Lord's hand of judgment still hanging over them. Verse 20. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh. They together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And so chapter 19 ends with the people of Judah in big trouble. And I'll summarize chapter 20 in a single sentence. God uses Assyria as an unwitting tool in his hand to destroy Israel. And then he destroys Assyria. But now a little more detail. So, so the chapter is a continuation of chapter 19, the previous chapter. Woe unto those who fail to protect the widows and fatherless, and then once more the refrain, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And how will God's anger be made manifest? How will God show his anger against Syria and Israel? Through the Assyrians. He'll send the Assyrians to destroy and trample the disobedient people. Verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is their indignation. I will send him, referring to Assyria, against a hypocritical nation. And against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But, he explains, if you were to ask an Assyrian or the king of Assyria, they were entirely unaware that they were being God's instrument. They have no interest in doing God's will. They simply want to conquer. Verse 7 tells us the Assyrian's king opinion of being God's instrument. Howbeit, he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but in his heart is to destroy and cut off nations not a few. He just wants to destroy a lot of nations. God doesn't even cross his mind. We have a few verses where the Assyrian king explains that he doesn't see any difference between the cities that he's already conquered and Jerusalem, which he intends to destroy. Verse 8, For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? 
Is not Kalno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? In other words, are not the cities that I'm going to conquer like the ones I've already conquered? Verse 11, Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and to her idols? He claims to have made all of these conquests by his own strength and wisdom, but, as Isaiah points out, he is simply being a tool in God's hands. The Assyrian king rebelling or boasting against God is compared to an axe boasting against the axeman. Verse 15, Shall the axe boast against him that heweth therewith? Shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod would shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift itself up as if it were no wood. But, eventually, the Lord will no longer need the conquering Assyrians to deliver his judgment, and they will fall. Their mighty army, with its neat rows of soldiers, is compared to a forest. But these will be destroyed until they are so few that a child could count them. Verse 19, it says, And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. Despite Israel initially having a large number of people, only a small remnant will remain because of the Lord's righteous judgment upon them. Verse 22, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. Pay attention to the next couple of verses. If there were ever an illustration that the gospel path is not going to be a smooth ride, we find it in verse 24. We'll read that in a second. Be not afraid of the Assyrian, the Lord says. True, he'll smite you and he'll take you into slavery, like the Egyptians did in the days of Moses. But after a while, his anger will cease and turn against the oppressors. You'll be smitten and taken into bondage, but don't worry, it will end eventually. It might take a few generations, but it will end eventually, so don't be afraid. Here's how Isaiah phrases that. Verse 24. However, thus saith the Lord of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with the rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. Verse 25, For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. Verses 26 and 7 describe the eventual end of the Assyrians. Jerusalem will be saved at the very last possible moment. In verses 28 through 32, Isaiah describes the advance of the unstoppable Assyrian juggernaut marching toward Jerusalem. First he comes to Aeth, from there to Migron. He leaves his chariots at Michmash, and if you look at a map, he's proceeding southward from one city to the next, to the next, to the next. They've crossed the passage and lodged at Geba. Ramath is afraid. Gibeah has fled. Oh, poor, poor Anathoth. Madmena is removed. Gebim gathers to flee. Then Assyria pauses at Nob for a single day, and he shakes his hand at Jerusalem. And then suddenly, the advancing army, compared to a mighty forest because of the resemblance of their vertically held spears to trees, is smitten and is no more. Verse 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. We read an account of how this unstoppable Assyrian army met its end in 2 Kings 18 and 19. And this is how it ends in 2 Kings 19 verse 35. And it came to pass that night 
that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So upon learning of his army's defeat, of 185,000 of his men dying overnight, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, returned to Nineveh, where he was later assassinated by his sons. And that's where we end today's discussion. Leave a note and let me know whether the context helped clarify what those chapters were talking about. And now, as we always do, we end with a trivia question. Around 612 BC, the Assyrian capital of Nineveh was conquered by the Babylonians. Then, in 605 BC, the Babylonians defeated the Assyrian army at Carchemish. The Assyrians were on their way out, and Babylon was on the rise. Today's question is, which nation would eventually defeat the Babylonians? We'll learn more about the fall of Babylon next time. Who defeated them? Leave your answer in the comments, and we will see you next time.